everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you today. Really wonderful show. We have the inimitable, the very beloved, people love him. VJ Prashad, who will be joining us and talking about lots of things. Make sure that you like this stream. Please subscribe. You press subscribe and then you hit the bell so you don't miss any of these streams. If you can become a Patreon supporter so you can see the entire stream. If you're watching this live, you're in luck because you get to see it all live. And if you're watching this later and you want to see the full interview, make sure you become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And we're going to bring in Vijay Prashad shortly. Um, But just before we do that, a couple of announcements. One is we've added another guest to the show because as if it's not good enough already, it gets even better. In addition to uh, Vijay, we also have Camila Escalante joining us from Casachan News. She's going to be talking about Latin America um, and right after the show at around eight 30, we're going to be doing a call-in and the link to that is in this description. Call-in is a free app you use on your phone, or you can now use it on your laptop and you get to ask us questions. Um, and I think that's about it. Um, of course, go to Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com uh, slash the Katie Helper Show. And you can also join on YouTube. When you join us on YouTube, become YouTube members, you get emojis like Bodhi emojis and you get um, badges and it tells you how long you've been a, a, a member and you get to be like an OG member, an OGM, I guess, if you will. So we're going to bring in our first guest. And in case you need any reminder of who this person is, he is an Indian historian, editor, and journalist. He's a writing fellow and chief correspondent at Globetrotter. He's the chief editor of Leftward Books and the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He's the author of several books, including Washington Bullets, which has an introduction by Evo Morales Aima. And he's the author most recently of The Retreat with none other than Noam Chomsky. So without any further ado, let us bring onto the show Vijay Prashad. Hello. Hello. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining. What time is it where you are, by the way? It's a good time. It's, it's a good time. All right. Nine o'clock. It's a lovely time. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So you are very prolific, and I struggle every time I have you on to figure out what to focus on. But I thought we could start off by talking about Peru, because you have written a piece on this. Tell us your thoughts on what has just happened in Peru. It's an interesting issue, because... Um, Peru is a difficult country. I first went there in the 1990s to try to score an interview with Sendero Luminoso. It's a long and complicated story. This Indian fellow shows up in Lima Airport, gets on a bus to Ayacucho, um, doesn't have any contacts. And, uh, well, I talked to some interesting people. Let it remain there. And that's the shining path for people who don't know. That's the shining path, correct. Um, Who at the time were in the midst of an appalling campaign of murdering other sections of the left, it should be said. 
um, and were in a fratricidal war with the military. You know, the country never really recovered from that. And that's why I wanted to start there. Um, it has a wretched oligarchy. Um, it, you know, the, the question of anti-Indian or anti-native sentiment is extraordinarily high. Um, and, there, you know, in, in our time, in our lives, there's really never been a, a project for the Peruvian people. You go back to an earlier era in the 60s and 70s when General Velasco was there. That's the last time you had a Peruvian national project, you know, where somebody came out there and said, we're going to kind of integrate the indigenous, we're going to integrate, um, you know, the people who are minors, we're going to deal with all the compelling problems of society. And here's a plan, you know, he had this book which had a blue cover on it. And by the way, when a young Hugo Chavez goes to Lima as a cadet, he gets he meets Velasco, shakes hands with him, and is given a copy of the blue book of Velasco's National Project. Years later, when um, when uh, the Venezuelans have their own project, he mimics the cover of Velasco's text. Anyway, the point is that Pedro Castillo won an election to become the president in 2021, an extraordinarily tight election, highly contested against Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of a man who himself conducted um, the most unusual thing that the Peruvian constitution kind of allows, the autogolpe, the self-coup. And you have this really ugly election campaign where Fujimori is running um, against this guy that they disparage at all times, a teacher, you know, a man who wears a big giant hat, um, very popular in parts of northern Peru, uh, popular among indigenous working class sections. Um, he comes to power, and but from the very minute he comes to power, it's clear that Fujimori and the oligarchy essentially try to um, first get rid of him as quickly as possible and then sandwich him. My friend Hector Behar was chosen as his first foreign, foreign minister, lasted a week. You know, he was out. Um, there was extraordinary attempt to break the party, the political formation of uh, Pedro Castillo. It's called Peru Libre. You know, people in, in Peru jokingly say this is arroz con mango, um, rice with mango, because it doesn't go. Now, frankly, I think it sounds pretty good. Yeah, it does sound pretty good. Kind of mango curry. It's a misnomer. It. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not opposed to rice with mango, but they say it's a sort of mismatch of coalition. They kind of tried to articulate a Peruvian project, but didn't. Pedro Castillo began to isolate himself from his own party. Um, it, at, a, at moments, including uh, at crucial moments, he detached himself from the other countries of Latin America, like Venezuela, Cuba, um, you know, and, and uh, Nicaragua. Uh, he tried to become friendlier with the United States and so on. That really didn't work out very well for him. At any rate, Castillo faced several impeachment uh, processes in the Congress. But, and here's the kicker, is that he was being pushed along by the U.S. Embassy. Now, Washington is a crafty uh, fox because Washington has had bad luck in many Latin American countries. They did a, a green-lighted a coup in Bolivia that was reversed, you know, um, through a very difficult, hard-fought process. They did a coup in, in Honduras in 2009, also reversed, but, you know, a decade-long process and so on. They've had to back off from trying to overthrow the government in Venezuela. 
But here in Peru, it's a smaller country. The oligarchy is much more wretched than in most of the countries. Trump decides to send an old CIA hand to be the ambassador. That's Lisa Kenna. Um, and what we found in this recent period is that a bunch of real scummy characters from the oligarchy were basically in touch with the U.S. embassy. You know, one of them, in fact, sitting in a prison cell, that's Vladimiro Montesinos. He was in a prison cell trying to egg on a former military friend of his, Pedro Rejas, to go in, into the embassy and talk to a guy who's the military attache there. Um, Mariano Alvarado. And the reason I know this is that somebody in the embassy who works in the embassy let me know that Alvarado was in touch with all these scummy characters. So it's very clear there's a link to the embassy. Uglier still, Katie, was that the day before, um, well, whatever this is, a coup overthrow, I think it was a coup. Um, the day before this coup, the Minister of Defense in Pedro Castillo's government, Gustavo Bobbio, uh, went to see Lisa Kenna in the U.S. Embassy. God knows what they talked about. Unfortunately for Castillo, he was arrested on the way probably to the Mexican Embassy by his own security guard. That means that the military was essentially already prepared for this. Um, they sentenced him to prison and so on. The Mexicans have given amnesty to his family. They said family can come in. The country is torn with protests, and it looks like the current president is under immense pressure to call for early elections. So, look, there is a U.S. hand in this. I know some people are loath to use the word coup, but I'm pretty liberal with it. Um, I think this was a coup. This is a new kind of coup. It was definitely with a lot of U.S. pressure. And, you know, if journalists are able to get access to Mariano Alvarado or to interview Lisa Kenna, they should ask them, what were you doing the week before Pedro Castillo was overthrown on the 7th of December? What about the violence that's happened? Well, you know, just as in Bolivia, the moment the um, oligarchy felt its finger on the pulse, and I must say the current president is not like a representative of the oligarchy, although a person of the right in, in many respects. Nonetheless, um, the vicious attack uh, against the poor has been extraordinary. You see, just as in Bolivia, the fissure in these countries along the Andes is along quote-unquote racial lines. Um, there's a white population, and then there are indigenous peoples, different communities and so on. In Bolivia, it was vicious, you know, the, the kind of white supremacist, and I know we don't use these terms outside the United States and Canada perhaps, but maybe we should. There's a white supremacist attitude in these Andean countries where there was a vicious attack on, on the, the indigenous. I mean, the attitude towards Evo Morales is mirrored in the attitude towards Pedro Castillo. So in both Peru and Bolivia, um, it was the indigenous. And in many parts of Peru, where Castillo was quite popular, especially rural indigenous areas, the military was using helicopters, they were fire, using live fire, um, you know, um, you know, the death toll so far has not been, you know, hundreds, but still there are people being killed. And that's why I think the protests have escalated, cascaded, which is why the interim or coup or whatever president has had to make some concessions. You know, she's constantly saying this, that and the other. And now she's saying, well, we may we may pull for earlier elections. But I must say the violence is extreme. And the U.S. Embassy 
Um, one important thing is was the quickest right out of the gate to recognize the new government, right out of the gate, you know. And I haven't heard Lisa Kenna, old CIA hand, come out there and talk about the civil rights and the democratic rights of the ordinary people of Peru. You know, when it's Iran, if somebody sneezes, they are right there saying, look, it's um, it's police brutality, violence, the regime must go and so on. I mean, it's true. There's extraordinary violence was being used in Iran. The U.S. government is quick to come in there and say something. But in Peru, they like this kind of violence. They consider it, you know, let's put it in a different way. They consider this a homeopathic dose of imperial violence. Little bits and pieces here and there scares people and establishes the permanent dominion of the United States and its allies. You've written a piece about the West interfering in, speaking of interventionism in many different forms, but about the West interfering in negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, it's of a piece, isn't it? I mean, look, the U.S. government just released release its military budget. Um, the official budget, which was 42 or so billion dollars more than what President Biden asked for, is $858 billion. In fact, uh, people look at these things carefully, suggest that the U.S. military budget is really one and a half trillion dollars because you got to add on, um, you know, the money that goes towards, um, you know, uh, the nuclear power, nuclear force and so on. By the way, all of that is buried in the Department of Energy or most of that is buried in the Department of Energy. United States government spends a lot of money, you know, more than half the discretionary budget and so on. One and a half trillion dollars on weapons, 800 bases around the world. You can't tell me that the U.S. government is spending this kind of money on arms for no reason, okay? It, it, it would be illogical for a government which is finding it difficult to compete against China commercially um, to use this money uh, for its military and not to build up its infrastructure or, or, you know, what Biden was bragging about, you know, the United States is going to create a chip supply chain, silicon chips and so on. I don't think that's going to happen. There, there is going to be no chip supply chain because you're not making the necessary government investments, spending all that money on, on war and so on. Well, in that case, the United States understands on the global scale, it just can't compete with what it calls its near peer rivals, whether Russia or China or other countries. You know, soon it's going to be Brazil again. Um, if Lula makes a left turn in Brazil, it's to be seen yet. Um, the United States can't compete with these countries commercially. You know, they you can't sell cheaper phones than the Chinese do, which is basically the same quality phone. You can't sell green technology. You don't have the 5G capacity and so on. So rather than compete with its so-called near-peer rivals um, commercially in the marketplace, so-called free enterprise, United States has to muscle them with its military. The military effectively is the bargaining chip that the U.S. government has. And that's what it's been using against Russia in the last several years. It's been trying to use its military power to pressure Russia, using the so-called security umbrella around Europe to cut Europe's buying of Russian energy. Trump went and told the Europeans that when he was in Europe just before he left office. Um, so... The war in Ukraine, it's not about human rights. It's not about democracy. I don't even think for the Russians it's really about denazification. 
the war is really a contest um, between the United States wanting to dominate Europe and Russia wanting to sell its energy to anybody. You know, I mean, the Russians sold one third of Germany's uh, imports came from Russia. That's what Russia was interested in, was a commercial arrangement. Russia was not seeking to take over Europe. It was just selling energy all over Europe. And the United States found that disagreeable. Why? Because the Atlantic Alliance was being threatened. The United States simply didn't have the capacity to compete with Russian natural gas. They want to sell liquefied natural gas, much more expensive than gas that comes piped through Nord Stream 2. So this mentality in Washington, you know, you can't, fight them with your capitalism. So you have to fight them with your imperialism. And that's the reason why um, the United States simply will not allow a peace negotiation to take place in Ukraine. Hillary Clinton said it, you know, on a TV show earlier this year. You probably played a clip in one of your shows, Katie, because it was so bizarre, where she said, well, you know, Ukraine is going to be Putin's Afghanistan. Firstly, that's a grotesque misreading of what happened to the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was basically assassinated by Gorbachev and people like Yeltsin. The Afghan war, of course, was a drag on the Soviet economy, but didn't bring it down. There's a fantasy that somehow this war is going to create regime change in Ukraine. I'd just like to remind people in Washington, D.C., that Mr. Putin whether you like it or not, has actually mined a strain of deep Russian chauvinism, which Lenin had warned about a hundred years ago, to his advantage. And, you know, the Russians are now quite fundamentally behind Putin. The protests have basically disappeared, combination perhaps of some repression, but also because they've been able to mobilize this immense seam, this, you know, mine, gold mine of of, uh, of patriotism and nationalism. Putin has used that. There's going to be no regime change in, in Russia. You're not going to see it happen. So the Ukrainians are bleeding. That's why I wrote that piece because I, I'm concerned that I feel people don't understand that this contest over Europe is going to be a bill paid by the Ukrainian people. And if you really feel for the Ukrainians, you must fight to end this conflict. It's go it's going to be for nobody's good, least of all the Ukrainians. That's such an important point because we do see people, a lot of people with blue and yellow flags in their Twitter bios. We see blue and yellow flags up around um, in people's windows. And we've obviously discussed the kind of double standards and hypocrisy and the double standards when it comes to empathy. But of course, the response to this is not you should disregard Ukrainians as much as you disregard Palestinians. It should be, you should care about Palestinians as much as you care about Ukrainians. But also, if you care about Ukrainians, you should want diplomacy and negotiations and not proxy war. But people, in a weird way, and maybe you cannot help us unpack this, so to speak, sorry to use such a corny academic jargon, but people somehow see calling for peace as a pro-war. I mean, we live in this topsy-turvy world where you're a Putinist if you want for there to be negotiations. You know, I think within the camp of the global left, and it's not just a, a you know Western warrior state problem. This is in the global left. Um, it was the war or the conflict in Syria that really opened up a series of fissures. Um, so, you know, when um, the Arab Spring took place in first Tunisia and then in Egypt in 2010, 2011. 
um, at the time, there was a kind of infectious energy in the Arabic-speaking countries. And you saw these protests start in Dara, in the south of Syria. Um, the governor of Dara acted really quite harshly against particularly young people that annoyed a lot of people. Mr. Um, uh, Bashar al-Assad went and apologized for what happened. But by then, the Turks, the Saudis, the United States, um, right-wing sections in Lebanon smelt, smelt blood. And they basically came in, they funded, you know, people are complaining about the Qatari uh, government now, you know, saying, oh, I, I, why are we playing football in Qatar? All the money spent on these stadiums, people lost their lives. What about the Qataris funding the most ghastly elements in Syria? I mean, I visited these camps in the Kalamun Mountains of Jabhat al-Nusra. I mean, these guys, they were vicious fellows, you know, wanting to slaughter Christians and so on. They were all funded by the Turks, the Qataris, the Saudis. In those days, Qataris and Saudis were together. So people who said, hey, listen, this is not really some sort of liberation struggle. This is a ghastly conflict between, on the one side, a government which is being beleaguered and, you know, my God, I have friends who were in Mr. Assad's jails. It's hardly a great liberal paradise. On the other side, these jihadi characters, horrible, you know, just repellent. But suddenly a discourse appeared where if you were on the left and you were not saying, if you were not uh, basically uh, ventriloquizing the CIA talking points, which was Assad must go. If you don't say Assad must go later, Gaddafi must go and so on, then you were pro-Assad, and therefore you are anti-humanity. This binary logic was set up around the Syria war. I know, you know, iterations of this were there earlier, but for this generation, the Syria war was, I think, very important. And in many parts of the global left, this became a defining feature. And after that, again, a kind of multiple choice exam is given to people on the left. You know, what is your opinion on Xinjiang? Um, there's only two choices, A and B. If you choose A, you're genocidal. If you choose B, then, you know, you're for humanity. Well, B may be for regime change backing the CIA, but that's not really taken seriously. This multiple choice attitude, this world of binaries, the lack of ability to look at the complexity of politics and history, people with no um, experience in politics basically came out there with giant megaphones, again, you know, uh, repeating CIA talking points and so on. This, all of this uh, gets, uh, you know, into the, the fray, as it were, in this Ukraine quest question. So that over this last year, I'm basically seeing everything that is a repeat of the kind of Syria logic. Um, you know, uh, if you are for peace, it's a Putin talking point. If you are saying that, look, this has also got something to do with NATO, it's a Putin talking point. If you say, well, you know, the war in Ukraine is bad, but, you know, there's remember the war in Iraq? Well, that's whataboutism. You see, this whataboutism is nonsense because this is a term manufactured by British intelligence used against the Irish Republican Army when the IRA was bombing pubs in London and people said, you are, you know, bombing pubs. They said, well, what about the civilians killed in, in, in the north of Ireland? And they said, oh, that's whataboutism. You know, you answer the question, is it good to bomb a pub? So this thinking, this desiccated desert of imagination has come into the left and social media has only escalated it. It's not the cause, frankly. I, I'm not one of those that says, well, social media trolls and so on. 
social media has just escalated it because social media has shortened the time frame for people to get things out there you know it's more democratic in that sense but it's also democratized brutality of thought uh, people are not allowing for reasonable argument on these issues and i i must say i sometimes wonder katie and and i may be off my head but we'll find out uh, you know maybe after i'm dead somebody can pull up a file and check it but i have a feeling that a lot of this stuff is targeted attacks that are quite well designed by you know our old friends in various intelligence agencies because this is all a very well thought out psychops kind of thing you know get people on into a frame of mind where they have to create put the ukrainian flag as their profile um get that get as many people to do that and then make that the litmus test um that if you have the ukrainian flag you can say anything if you don't have the ukrainian flag then you're a putin supporter this binary kind of uh, paralysis has really hit people on the left hard and i think it's what's scary is that you have people who are i mean uh bad faith players like you just re- referred to then you have people who are actually i think good faith they're just they just don't get it so they hear people say will you condemn putin will you condemn bashir al-assad and that sounds reasonable to them because they think that someone is just acting kind of in a, a vacuum and standing up for human rights and they don't understand how this plays into narratives of regime change and it makes people war ready so if they don't understand that then they just see people being asked to condemn someone and what and then of course if you don't want to spend your time and resources and energy condemning these people because you think that the vilification of Assad or the vilification of Putin is unhelpful and actually pro war they don't really see why you're doing that it I becomes mean, like the yeah. condemnation olympics or something that's well said and look we're seeing it with china for instance um the question is always asked what's your opinion on hong kong what do you think about xinjiang what's go you know why aren't you condemning the chinese government um i mean firstly to what end you know to what end are you making that condemnation um if we if we take a look at the xinjiang issue it's a complicated issue let's discuss the complexities you know i at one point i talked to a reporter from the nation at great length you know i i he wanted to know it was i think it was a hit job but i i said okay fine i'll still go on and talk to this guy i talked to this reporter i was very sincere with him i told him look chinese have a problem they had underdeveloped parts of western china so they put in large investments in the last 10 years they've mechanized agriculture in xinjiang southern xinjiang the cotton areas and so on they're integrating xinjiang into central asia and then i said something that you know I, he completely took out of context i said that this is part of a modernization project that in other words they're trying to eradicate poverty um they're trying to integrate people into uh, the rest of what's going on in china and finally they're having to deal with the question of radicalization of people on the lines of jihadism now how does the united states deal with jihadism you go and bomb the shit out of the country you know that's how the us does it you kill over a million people how does the us does it you pick out people and throw them in guantanamo or in other black sites and torture them that's what the us does putin and yeltsin before him bombed chechnya to the ground to deal with jihadism the chinese decided we don't want to do that we're going to put people and have you know whatever it is reeducation of one kind or the other 
Now, you pick and choose what, what is preferable. I'm not saying re-education is a good thing, but it's certainly in the context of destroying Urumqi, you know, just flattening Urumqi, like the United States flattened Iraq. That's hardly a, a better solution. You know, is there an even better way to do it? I'm interested in a discussion. What's a better way to do it? But the moment you say, let's have a conversation, oh, you are a genocide denier. I mean, this is the level at which, in a sense, um, I would argue that a kind of binary attitude, a sort of CIA trapdoor is, is set for you. You know, that you, you stand alongside this trapdoor and in a way, the only thing you can do is jump in. Uh, if you don't have your wits about you and say, wait a minute, I, I want to think this through. You're asking me, what is your opinion about a report that came out from a think tank in the outskirts of Washington, D.C., um, whose, whose writer is, uh, you know, is alleged to be an anti-Semitic weirdo. Um, that think tank has close ties to American intelligence. And I'm supposed to take that report and make a judgment about a country of 1.5 billion based on this report, which looks like it was produced, you know, by, um, you know, in sort of a, a copy shop somewhere. I mean, don't fall for the trap. Ask the questions. Where is this coming from? What is this information? You know, who are you? Who is this? What is this institute? You know, why is this German guy telling me what I should think about China and why should I feel hectored? And then on top of everything, Katie, why is this guy on Democracy Now! talking to people who purportedly on the center left or the left, uh, listening to their news from Amy, uh, listening to a guy who's written what I think is, you know, some sort of intelligence report on China. Why not? And, you know, we always hear this thing. Let's hear from the Chinese. Let's hear from the Uyghurs. Why are you speaking? Let's hear from the Uyghurs. Perfectly okay to have a German guy talk about these things. Nobody was saying where the Uyghur voices. And where the Uyghur voices, the question isn't Uyghur voices. Which Uyghurs are talking? You know, which Uyghurs? Right. People are never interested in... Like, listen to Syrians, listen to Libyans. It's always listen to certain Syrians, listen to certain Libyans. Not that they ever say that, but that's always part of the agenda. Who is this German fellow? Yeah, his name is Adrian Zench. I don't know much about him, okay? I've just, you know, in hearing here and there. Yes, you're right. You know, uh, let's listen to the Libyans. But we're not going to listen to anybody who wants to talk in a nuanced way about Libya. I first went to Libya as a child in 1974. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful country, Katie. You know, the whole country is a desert. And there is no real country because it's cities that are attached to each other by roads in the north. And there's the great city of Sabah in the south. Beautiful cities along the Tunisian uh, borderland. You know, cities made of, of sand and mud. Beautiful, gorgeous country. Uh, what was done to Libya was grotesque. I mean, um, unnecessary. I mean, I remember talking to the UN uh, Secretariat, asking them, listen, you just passed a, um, a resolution, 1973, in March of 2011. And I said, hey, listen, um, guys, you know, you've just passed this resolution. On what basis are you making the argument that Gaddafi is conducting genocide in Libya? And they said, well, it's on the basis of press reports. So I asked one of my friends who is in the secretariat, listen, be honest with me. Okay, when you say press reports, what press? Because I don't know of any press that's actually there in Ajtabia, you know, which was 
the front line of the civil war at the time. People were there in Benghazi, but they were not there in Ajtabia. So how do you know what's happening in Ajtabia? And he said, oh, well, the main press source for our resolution is Al-Arabiya. Al-Arabiya? Al-Arabiya is the bloody press release of the Saudi royal family. It's basically the palace rag. How can you take this? This is not a press. This is the stenographers of the, of the Saudi royal family. For God's sake, the United Nations using Saudi talking points to basically push through a UN resolution that allowed France and the United States to bomb the living daylights out of Libya, destroy the state, and look at the state it is in now. Not only Libya, but look at what continues to happen. No more on the news. Continues to happen. There are African peoples who are held captive in northern cities like Misrata. For a brief period, there was some press reporting. That has vanished. My friends in Libya tell me that stuff is still going on. Uh, to some extent, because the Europeans are not preventing um, migrants to cross the Mediterranean easily, migrants continue to come for a host of reasons. And in Libya, it's become a business now. This is what they did to Libya. Where's the, you know, uh, the outrage now from all those great human rights defenders, you know, who in March, April 2011 were essentially cheering on NATO's planes as they bombed Libya. Where are they now? They don't care about the human rights of Libyans. At the time, they just wanted to be cowboys, human rights cowboys, you know, uh, riding along with, um, with that criminal, Nicolas Sarkozy uh, and, uh, and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. The attitude of Hillary Clinton, you know, when Gaddafi was killed, not becoming of a world leader, I must say, not becoming. When she chuckled, when she said, we came, he died. That was an awful moment. I didn't plan to ask you about this, but I, I am curious. What do you think has happened at Democracy Now? I, I don't know. Uh, I can't speculate. Uh, every once in a while, I'm invited to come on. I have my own theory of why I'm invited to come on. Often what happens is like they had, I think, Adrian Zenj, that man I mentioned for like an hour or so, maybe more. They got a lot of heat. And then uh, Juan Gonzalez, you know, asked for me to come. And I, I know it was Juan Gonzalez because the day they booked me for, he said he couldn't come that day. So they said, can you come the next day? Because Juan wants to be there when you come and so on. I mean, am I playing a role in democracy now, balancing out their CIA talking points? Perhaps. Um, am I being played by them? I don't think so. That was so great. Always such a great time talking to, to Vijay Prashad. And if you guys like that, First of all, please like the stream right now. Uh, Katie with the bloodlust, lol, where Pilgrim, Pilgrim wrote. Um, also, if you're watching this live, you're so unlucky, you're blessed because you got to see that whole interview with VJ. If you're watching this later, then you're going to definitely want to join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show so that you can see the whole interview. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. For $1 a month, you just get to help make this show possible. That's $12 a year. It's pretty affordable. And for $5 a month, you get access to bonus exclusive content. So very much worth it, in my opinion. And look at this. Jonathan says, being a patron makes you smarter. So wow. All right. So let us bring on to the stage Camila Escalante. Hi, Camila. How are you? 
Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me, Katie. Of course. Thanks for joining. We always love having you. You give us such a great roundup of what's happening in, in Latin America. So tell us where you are and what you're covering. Well, I'm in Sao Paulo back in Brazil, and I've spent um, probably like four months here this year. Like BJ, uh, I was here for the elections. Uh, I came here um, for some social movement stuff in the summer, the North American summer, of course. And then I came back for the first round since the election campaign kicked off. I went back home to Bolivia, came back for the second round. And I'm here now because, um, you know, the transition has already begun from Bolsonaro's government to the Lula government. So what happens is essentially as soon as Lula was elected and that was uh, proclaimed, uh, he selects um, a number of people that are, some of whom um, are now going to be in his actual cabinet once he officially takes office. And they're part of a transition team that goes to Brasilia. And it's kind of like there are two governments operating simultaneously. Not exactly, uh, but they begin integrating themselves. They have their own office space there. And, you know, it's supposed to be the handing over of power. Uh, there was a, an official event that took place on December 12th, which was Lula received his diploma from the Supreme Electoral Court, making it essentially official. Uh, that he'll be sworn in on January 1st. So I'll be traveling um, the next, uh, before the end of the year to Brasilia to take part in the inauguration and do coverage. But it's going to be this massive festival. So Lula's wife is actually uh, organizing the festival and it's all of these Brazilian celebrities and artists that are really, really, really well known. Brazil's like a really huge producer of entertainment. So these people are massive. I mean, in the US, nobody knows who they are except for a couple of them. There's like one really famous singer, Anita, uh, Pablo Vitar, who's like a really famous drag queen. There's many others. But here they're like superstars and they have like 50 million followers. And so all of these people kind of like in one way or another endorsed Lula during the campaign, which was a pretty big thing because a lot of these people want to stay apolitical. They don't really want to put their name out there. They don't want to offend people. But this was a different situation. And it, it became very common for uh, telenovela, soap opera stars and certain athletes and all sorts of different big names to come out in support of Lula. So a lot of them are going to be in this festival and concert that Lula's uh, wife is organizing. So there are going to be hundreds of millions or hundreds of thousands of people going to Brasilia from all of the states, including caravans of social movements and unions uh, to take part in that festival that will, uh, you know, it'll take place parallel to the official inauguration, which is, of course, um, there's a ceremony in the Congress. Uh, there's, you know, uh, the arrival of foreign dignitaries. Uh, all sorts of people are going to be arriving. So I'm going to be covering those things as well as the, the fun stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I've basically been kind of hanging out in Brazil. I just uh, released an interview today with Marco Fernandez, who's with the Tri-Continental Institute, which is actually uh, VJ's uh, research institute. And Marco actually talked about that uh, study they did, which is in Portuguese. I don't think it's available in English, uh, but about um, China's poverty alleviation campaign. 
And Marco talks about how that can be, lessons can be applied here in Brazil um, from China. But um, I actually got a comment on Twitter when I, when I posted the, the video just a little bit ago saying that China actually took uh, some inspiration from Lula because Lula actually and the PT government eradicated to some degree hunger. Well, it took uh, Brazil off the UN hunger map. And of course, Brazil later returned to the hunger map under Bolsonaro. But now Lula is vowing to take it off the map once again. And not only that, but boost production and begin exporting way more to countries like China um, and, you know, obviously become more of a superpower, um, obviously in the region, but in the world as well. So he has a very ambitious plan. So I'm going to kind of be around here after the inauguration to cover his first moves. BJ mentioned some of those things that he might be doing, but it just seems like a lot of the stuff's already in motion. He's already, they're already trying to get some things passed in the Congress uh, right now before Lula even takes power. So it's really exciting. This is a massive country, you know, has the potential to really lead things regionally and in the world. And it's often overlooked because of the, perhaps the language barrier. Tell us about what just happened in Peru. We talked about this a little bit with, with Vijay and you've been talking about this at Kasachan News. So tell us about what's happening there. Okay. So I'm going to take a peek to see what the updated okay. death toll is. So actually they just released a 5 p.m. update which says they, the Ministry of Health, which says that now 26 people have been killed uh, during the protests across the country. Um, and this is 26 civilians, the majority of which, 14 of them in Ayacucho and in about eight or nine other regions. And so what we're seeing in Peru, as Vijay said, is, you know, it's going to continue. So right now, just uh, a few minutes ago, uh, the Congress approved a measure to bring up the general elections to April 2024. And last week, we had heard that the de facto uh, regime head, who was the vice president of Pedro Castillo, she came out on national television to try to calm uh, the protests and said that she would be moving elections up. This is one of the major demands. People are obviously really angry. They want the release of Pedro Castillo, who they say is a legitimate president. They want this de facto president to step down. They want the Congress to close uh, the way in which it was supposed to be dissolved by Pedro Castillo. Um, and they want elections immediately, a constituent assembly and a new constitution. But immediate elections is one of the most important things. They already think the legislature is completely illegitimate. They don't want this what they consider to be an unpopular, illegitimate Congress to rule over um, a new set of elections, nor do they want this um, supposed president to govern over elections. They want, you know, as soon as possible to be able to go to the polls if they can't reinstate the popular government, which came to power winning more than half of all total votes uh, and the only person with legitimacy, then they want new elections. And so she said that she would hold, that she would go to the Congress to get them to bring up the elections for 2024. That's what has taken place this evening. Uh, the Congress has voted in favor of that. But what people were asking for was elections in 2023, in the new year, as soon as it can be organized. It's a very difficult thing to organize elections, especially when all of these uh, institutions are seen as illegitimate. But that's what people had called for. So now we're talking about elections 16 months from now, 
So I think this is only going to fuel anger. People are going to be even more upset. And of course, people are really um, outraged because of the state repression that we're seeing, just absolute brutality. And it's a lot of what we saw in Bolivia during the coup. The people who are getting killed right now, who are getting massacred, are in these rural areas of working class people and are almost across the board indigenous. If you see the sort of like compilations of their little photos, they're all young men. A lot of them are teenagers. I would say at least half of them are teenagers and all of them are men to my knowledge, but they're all coming from these different provinces and for the most part, not major cities. We saw, as BJ mentioned, uh, they were shooting from helicopters. Some people have been getting killed by bullet wounds, but also getting killed by the use of tear gas. I mean, if you launch a tear gas canister at close mm. range, you can actually kill someone. And we've seen, you know, tear gas canisters get lodged in people's eye sockets, go through people's heads. This has happened in the repression against indigenous people in Ecuador, in Bolivia, and now in Peru. Unbelievable that this continues to be a tactic. And of course, it's being denounced by human rights organizations in Peru, internationally, as well as, um, you know, a lot of uh, leaders from around the continent um, have denounced this. But unfortunately, it's continuing. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of parallels with, with Bolivia. Just a few days ago, um, ALBA TCP, which is the Bolivarian Alliance, uh, which is about 10 countries, they held a meeting. And they stated their position there. And it's pretty obvious that people are not going along with the coup. They are, uh, the presidents of these countries are either outright saying that they don't recognize this uh, de facto president. Or they are not necessarily saying that, but they're continuing to refer to Pedro Castillo as the president. And they're saying that he's a political prisoner and that he was ousted in a legislative coup. That's 10 countries. Apart from that, um, the president of Honduras, Xiomara Castro, Castro, came out last week saying that they repudiate this coup and it's a coup against Pedro Castillo. I mean, they came out and said that obviously because of what happened to Mel Zelaya. Her in the who happens to be her husband. Yeah. Uh-huh, in the coup that was orchestrated by the U.S. and Canada against Honduras in 2009. And then Additionally, uh, a statement was put out by these four countries that have been kind of doing stuff together, not as an official block, but Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, now with Petro, and Bolivia. They put out another statement, uh, you know, calling for the protection of the physical integrity of Pedro Castillo, referring to him as president and everything like that. I mean, that's a whole lot of countries in our region that are refusing to go along with what's happening here. And the person who is supposed to be you know, the de facto uh, leader, president here, is actually, was the vice president. She was uh, technically democratically elected to be the vice president, but people say that she's lost legitimacy. So they're not going around with that, going um, along with that. Then this evening, everything's happening right now. So Mexico has been one of the loudest countries including in AMLO's daily press conferences, saying this is a coup. It was a legislative coup. In every way he can possibly say it, he's been saying, um, you know, that they, they don't agree with what's going on. They always process it and follow it by saying, you know, we're a country that believes in not interfering in the sovereign affairs of other countries, but we're just saying, but I'm just saying that this was a coup. So now 
the foreign minister or the foreign ministry of Peru of the de facto regime has declared the Mexican uh, ambassador in Peru persona non grata. Basically, they're kicking out the the Mexican ambassador because they've just had enough of all the protests from, I guess, from the embassies. Uh, You know, and most of the protests have been like just Maduro on his like nightly streams talking to his own domestic audience. But of course, you know, the, the regime in Peru is following all this. So they're kicking out the Mexican ambassador. So it's kind of like a really... Um, like tense situation. They're not, they have no legitimacy, obviously, within the country. That's why we're seeing these vast protests and the blockades. The road blockades are taking place in regions across uh, the country. The national police actually puts out these maps every day on their social media that shows how many and where the different highway protests are around the country. And there's just tons of them. Um, and of course, in those like rural uh, communities where there's large indigenous populations, and they've also been shutting down airports um, and threatening to shut down large things like that. And I just sent you this video of this gringo on TikTok. So one really funny story is that all these tourists are stuck at Machu Picchu. One second. You sent it to me. Okay, you emailed it to us. Let's see. No, no. I sent it on WhatsApp. I forwarded it because I have it uh, in my oh, WhatsApp. Okay. Let me see if I can. I see. I just saw. Hold on one second. So the blockades are so intense right now that anyone who was like at Machu Picchu um, on the mountain, they can't get out because they have to get out by rail. And there's a big rail blockade. I don't actually know what the status is right now because we're talking about like people from dozens of countries who are probably like trying to get a hold of their respective embassies to fly them out of there. Because, I mean, if there's blockades and they're not lifting, then the only way would be for them to get airlifted. And so now the hotels are like feeding them just like eggs and coffee because they're running out of food because there's only a limited amount of food and the food can't come into where they are. So it's been crazy. And then even um, people like Peruvians are stuck in Bolivia because there are even protests at the border, the Bolivia-Peru border. And so, I mean, they really have the country quite locked down. But unfortunately, like as you know, and is always the case, the international media is framing it as violent protests. Um, but at the end of the day, like police aren't getting killed. Police have been taken to hospital because of injuries um, and taken off the job because of injuries sustained, maybe getting hit by stones, but they're not being killed as the protesters are. They are quite militant protests in different parts. And so, um, yeah, the, the whole, you know, this coup regime has an ally in the U.S. Embassy, what I sent you by email was that um, uh, Pedro Castillo, after a few days of being uh, held at that police station, he uh, he released a couple of handwritten letters that were posted on his social media. And he pointed to the U.S. ambassador and the U.S. embassy as being involved in the decision to uh, send out the military and uh, militarize the country which, of course, resulted in all of these deaths that we're seeing. So he's pointing to that involvement, that the U.S. Embassy is really supporting uh, this de facto regime. And also, you know, as UJ mentioned, there's, um, you know, it's a very, it's not just any ambassador there. It's someone who has years at the CIA and worked very closely with Mike Pompeo, who was a former uh, CIA chief. And so, 
you know, it's very obvious that this is a U.S.-backed coup, and people are naming it as such. Um, and didn't Lula? Lula has not condemned the this as a coup, right? No. So, so we have a bit of a division among some would-be allies. Yeah, it, it's a bit of it's being criticized internally. I would say in in Brazil, I think people think that perhaps he was just trying really hard to be diplomatic because he hasn't entered office. Right. Perhaps be presidential. And Maybe not like, get killed or well, there, I don't cooed himself. To, he didn't need to say anything at all. I mean, he really yeah. did. But there was there were a few days of silence, relative silence from Bolivia and from, you know, those who are kind of leaders of the region. Um, and so instead of himself remaining silent, he decided to jump the gun. And then, of course, days later, everyone else came out and basically rejected the coup. So he looks kind of like the only sort of leftist president to take that position. I mean, even Gustavo Petro took a really hard position and has now on numerous occasions made statements about this, uh, you know, calling it a coup and everything. So it's kind of weird that that Lula took that position, but I don't think he's going to go hard on it. I think now that he sees that he's the only one saying that, uh, recognizing the vice president, uh, I think he'll keep quiet for a minute. And Boric also, right, in Chile? I think he said something also somewhat Lula-esque about this. I'm sure he did. Yeah. I don't I didn't actually follow what he said, but that would that would make sense. So Brad, do we have the Machu Picchu clip? Okay, so you can you set this up for us, Camila? We can show it. Oh, it's just it's just like one of these kids who who got stranded. Uh, I can't even remember which one it is because there's so many of them now. Uh but you know, Shannon in Peru, it it got broken up into two, but the longer one is the oh. first one. Brad, I'm gonna send you both of them. Sorry about this. I'll send you both at the same time. Technology, guys. You'll love to see it. Actually, while Brad does that, Camila, there's a question for you. Camila, this is from Andrew Gruder. Thoughts on the likelihood of Castillo family physically reaching Mexico for asylum? Also, you think the picture will change with Lula back in power? I mean, he did ask for asylum on the day that the coup took place, and he was swept up and taken from the Essentially, when he was exiting the palace straight to prison, he wasn't able to uh, make, make his it. way to the to the Mexican embassy. And Lo confirmed that they had, you know, that they had heard about his desire to seek asylum. And he's been visited by the Mexican ambassador while in custody. And I'm not sure how much further uh, that will go. But he was only supposed to be held for a certain amount of time, like 72 hours or something, on sort of pre-trial detention because they don't have anything against him. And um, I guess they, you know, did some crazy stuff. And now he's actually going to be held for like a year um, or 18 months or something like that, which is, I mean, it's so obvious that it's um, that it's like a case of political persecution. He's a political prisoner. And he is just being held because, you know, they, they don't want him to come back into power. They see how much uh, popular support he has. He was losing a lot of support since he, since he won the election. He's been called a traitor by the Peru Libre Party, which brought him to power. But so many people now are sympathizing with him. They're seeing him as a victim who's not a trained politician, who's just a person who comes from the popular sectors, who's a teacher, 
And he got kind of fooled into everything that's going on right now, including that, you know, the the statement that he made on the day of the coup where he was calling for the dissolution of Congress, where he was calling for the state of emergency and that said that they were going to reorganize the institutions. People believe that he was, you know, tricked into making that announcement. He had recently met with Luis Almagro on a couple of occasions, both in Washington and in Lima, where the Organization of American States uh, held a meeting quite recently. And so people just believe that, you know, he's he's a victim of all of this as well. And they think that he needs to be released, even if he doesn't return to the presidency, that he's just, uh, you know, another victim in all of this. And of course, as is mentioned, has been mentioned many times, um, Peru has had six presidents in like six years. So um, six or seven years. So it obviously shows, you know, the weakness of the institutions and the legitimacy of everything and the way in which, um, you know, people call, have referred to it as a parliamentary dictatorship, a country that's not led by the executive, but where a disproportionate amount of power is exercised by that illegitimate legislature. Hmm. Brad, are we ready with the clips? Okay, great. So here we go unsafe to travel Peru with people blocking roads and protesting. I was traveling in Peru because I needed to get a flight. So I took the bus from La Paz to Puno and it went normal until we got to the Bolivian border. After a 10 minute drive, we got to a blockage and locals said if the bus tries to pass, they'll damage it. So the driver just left us there and said, walk to a town called Puli. And then we got to the town just to learn the bus station was closed and we couldn't get to Puno that day. So I had to stay in a hostel for that night and I felt very uncomfortable in this town. The next day was a 69 kilometer trip to Puno and I left at 7am and the buses were still not going so I just had to start walking till I was able to find a taxi. There was another blockage so I had to walk again and at this stage the protests started to get bad with burning tires on the ground and at one stage someone screamed gringo and threw a piece of tire on fire at my face. Lucky it missed. I met some Peruvian people to to walk with as they got nervous for me and that was helpful. But after the next hour, I was on my own and I was able to pay a man on a motorbike to drive me. And when we got to blockages, he just went into the farmland. I kept doing this for the next four hours. Walk to a town, then pay someone on a bike. It wasn't until 1pm I got into big trouble. One of the bikes said he was going for a shortcut and stopped in the middle of farmlands and blackmailed me for more money. And then we tried to go through farmlands again and not deal with the blockage. But five bikes started chasing us in the farmland and trying to stop us from cutting past. And then I kept walking and walking. Then I found a cattle truck going and I paid them a bit of money to hide in the back. At this stage, it was 2.30 and I had 12 kilometers to go. And it started to become a race to get to Puno before sundown. So I kept walking and walking till I was able to find a tuk-tuk and they took me to the end of Puno. It was 4 p.m. at this stage and I knew the hostel was another three kilometer walk. And I was able to get there by five o'clock. And that was what it's like to travel in Peru when there's a protest. It was stressful and hard and dangerous. I would not recommend coming to Peru at this stage. All right, let's see. What do we got number part two? I'm in suspense now. 
It's what it's like escaping Peru in a civil unrest. After I got to Puno, I stayed at the hostel for two nights as I needed a rest from the day before. The hostel I stayed at was safe and very helpful. And the name of the hostel was Koala Hostel. And I would highly recommend going there if you're in Puno. And they were organizing boats from Puno to Bolivia. So I was able to get a boat and it left at 6 a.m. And it went on Lake Titicaca and it was one choppy ride. We didn't have a problem until we got to the border and the Peru protests were blocking the border between Bolivia and Peru. So we had to wait an hour till they left. And after that, we were able to go through immigration, get a stamp on our passport, and leave for Bolivia. So he made it. Yeah, so the, the article I saw, which was like several days ago, was 800 people, tourists, trapped at Machu Picchu, and uh, many of whom are British. Uh, and it's funny because, like, we live by a, in La Paz by a tourist hostel, and it's basically all people from... Mostly the UK, the US, um, maybe some Scandinavians, maybe some Australians. And they do this sort of like route. They like go to, maybe maybe you know it, uh, but it, they go to Chile, Peru, and Bolivia. I'm not sure if they go anywhere else, but like everyone does the same, the same little tour. And so, and it's like a lot of them are 18. So they're not really, it's their first time going anywhere. They, they find out that it's like really cheap for them based on their currency and where they live. And, you know, they get they get kind of, like, robbed in terms of, like, they're overpaying for stuff, but they can afford it. So I can just kind of imagine, like, what the crowd looks like there, and they're only feeding them uh, eggs and coffee for, for two weeks. Right. Wow. Any other final words that you want to tell us about what's happening in, in Bolivia, what's happening in Brazil, Peru, anywhere else you guys are covering? Well, it's just like really exciting, like what, you know, to see what's going to happen here in Brazil. It is really notable that or noteworthy that we continue to see these protests by Jair Bolsonaro's supporters who refuse to accept the election result. And, you know, they protested a whole lot when Lula received his credentials from the TSC on the 12th. But the protests really began just after the October 30th election when they refused uh to, to recognize the result, including here in Brasilia, but, you know, or here in Sao Paulo, also in Brasilia, and also throughout the south, the southern region of Brazil, which is, you know, kind of known for, you know, having some white supremacist cells, some neo-Nazi cells, and a lot of Bolsonaro supporters, um, has a lot of agribusiness. And so we expect to see more of these sorts of protests. Um, they're burning cars, uh, they're burning buses. Um, a lot of it's being orchestrated and organized through Telegram. And so this is going to be the most, uh, the inauguration with the most, you know, kind of amped up security that we've ever seen in Brazil. And, you know, some people are fearful in terms of the convoys of social movements and Lula supporters who are going to be going to Brazil because in the past, um, including in the last six years since the coup against Dilma, there have been some sort of, um, Incidents that have been characterized as terrorism were kind of like pro-Lula convoys. They always kind of travel by land, um, have been targeted. They've been shot at and things like that. So we're going to be looking out for things like that. But we can't, you know, live in fear is what, you know, people say. They're going to go and celebrate and support their president, uh, despite, you know, all of these threats of violence from the Bolsonaro supporters. 
And do you want to give a little summary of the World Cup? I know that your Kasachan colleague, Ali, was in Argentina. Yeah, Ali's on his way back to La Paz now. He um, he did a little podcast with uh, some of our friends who are also big uh, football guys in La Paz. They, they have their own leagues uh, that they play in. And um, Ali doesn't play, but, or currently at least, but, um, you know, he's a big fan of Argentine football and football in general. I, of course, my team was Brazil. So I've, I'm literally still trying to pick myself up after that loss. I mean, I'm a lifelong fan of certain teams. I'm not a bandwagoner. I'm not a flip-flopper. So when my teams are out, I don't just like jump to another another team. So I wasn't really uh, team Argentina for this. But, uh, you know, it was really, I don't know if you guys, if you guys were able to cover it at all, but obviously this is the first time in history that Morocco, an African or Arab country made it to the semifinals. So that was really, um, an amazing thing to have happened. Obviously, Palestine was highlighted throughout, uh, the Qatar World Cup. They were able to have their flag out. Lots of people from different countries across the world carried the Palestinian flag, including the Moroccan players on the field. Um, and there were many other shows of solidarity with Palestine from the stadium stands and outside of the stadium in Qatar. This is something that could only happen because the World Cup was held in Qatar, despite any, you know, human rights abuses or anything else that might take place in the context of uh, the buildup to this um, or the organization and preparation for this World Cup. Um you know, we know that these Western NATO countries are also uh, culprits in human rights abuses all around the world and warmongers. And so, you know, in four years, in 2026, the World Cup is going to be held in three countries for the first time. It's going to have more teams participating. Um, it's going to be Mexico, the United States and Canada. And I think it's highly unlikely that, you know, you're going to be able to have all of these or the specific type of, uh, you know, political show in terms of all the Palestine stuff we saw. Obviously, you know, different, different contexts, different rules they might allow in some stadiums, they might allow um, drinking of alcohol. Right. Obviously, there's a lot of like racism, uh, you know, as part of everything that took place. It's absolutely ridiculous. If anyone follows football, you know that in um, football stadiums and the matches for like the major uh, football leagues, including in, you know, Bolivian, uh, matches in Argentina, you can't drink alcohol. They do not sell alcohol, uh, because of the hooliganism that already exists. So it's no different in Qatar. Maybe the reason behind banning it uh, might be different, but you know, it was, it was a lot of commentary based on people who don't watch the sport and who are just on Twitter and just wanted to, to, you know, talk shit. So it was, it, you know, a lot of people came together at the very end and have celebrated Argentina's win. Uh, Ollie and Daryl, our friends, um, were there in Buenos Aires to watch the, the final match and also celebrate for like 24 hours afterwards and uh, participate in the celebrations when the team returned home and they got their grand welcome. So obviously it's very, you know, moving for a lot of people in Latin America who are fans of not only Messi, but of course Maradona who, you know, everyone here worships, especially the left, including Nicolas Maduro and and all that. So it was it was pretty cool. 
Well, thank you so much, Camila, and come back. And everyone check out Camila's work and Casa News. Thanks so much for having me. And, you know, we have a patron. You can uh, find it on our on our Twitter. It's Casa uh, News on Patreon. And that sort of, uh, you know, the subscription helps us keep going. And potentially, you know, if we get enough uh, supporters, it helps us do things like cover more stuff on the ground, like what's going on in Lima, which is something that, is like not, you know, in the books for us right now. We don't have funding for that, but we, you know, hope to to do some coverage, um, some more coverage, closer coverage as the situation continues there in, in Peru. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.